So we are in a teaching series in what's called the Book of Exodus. And Exodus is a story about the greatest redemptive event in the history of God's people before the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, which we celebrate at Easter. And the Exodus story, it's a, a story of slavery and rescue. And above all, it's a story about a holy and good and gracious God who deeply cares about his people and acts to rescue them out of slavery. And so Exodus from front to back and everything in between is a story about this God. He's the main character, who this God is, what he's like, and what he does for those he loves and cares about. That is ultimately what the story of Exodus, the story of the Bible, is about. But at the very same time, it's also a story about the human response to a holy God, to a God who is this great and this good, that he would come down into our world and do things in it for our good. And so last week, we, we actually started a journey that we're going to wrap up today in our passage. We stepped onto holy ground with a man named Moses. He was a shepherd in the wilderness. He encounters a holy God in a burning bush, and this conversation began where God showed up to Moses and he revealed himself and he revealed his plan to Moses, telling him, I'm going to rescue my people out of slavery in Egypt. The greatest superpower in the world at this time has their grip on the people of God and God's like, I'm going to come and I'm going to break the chains of their slavery. I'm going to lead them out to a land of blessing. And then at the very end, of the conversation last week, we see God lean into Moses and say, hey, and Moses, you have a part to play in this. I want to do this with you. He said in chapter 3, verse 10, come, I will send you, Moses, to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. And so everything that God wanted, everything that God's people wanted, everything that Moses wanted and probably carried with him all these 40 years he's been a fugitive in the wilderness, God says it's going to happen. This is not a maybe or a might. Rescue is coming. God is going to do it and he wants Moses to go with him to do it. And you think Moses would be thrilled, excited, ready to jump in, ready to go, ready to join God in what God has revealed he is going to do? But he isn't. In fact, Moses has questions and some reasons why he can't do what God is asking. Moses is going to wrestle with God on holy ground. And I love this story. It's so human. It's so real and true to the human experience with God. And between that and the story that we heard Tim share about how he wrestled with God, what we're going to see and learn today is that wrestling with God is a part of what it means to follow God and to join him in what he wants to do in the world. And so as we jump back into the story of Exodus, we're back on holy ground in chapter 3. Moses is with God, and he's been told the plan of God and his part to play in it, and now we get to see Moses respond to that. And we pick up his response in verse 11 of chapter 3, where it says this, But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt. He, God, said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. 
And so this interplay between God and Moses is going to be repeated five times throughout these passages. It's a back and forth conversation between a holy God who has the willingness and the power to rescue his people from Egypt and a very human Moses who struggles to get on board with God and what God wants to do with him. And so right before this response of Moses, God has told Moses his plan. God says, I will rescue my people. I will be the one to do this. I'm going to break the chains of slavery. I'm going to lead my people to a land of blessing. God is the orchestrator, the author of this rescue. But he wants Moses to go with him, to join him, to be his human instrument on the ground in that rescue. And so this is a, a huge vision and a huge ask that God has put before Moses. You have to remember, Moses has been in the desert. His life has been simple, quiet. And then all of a sudden, a holy God says, we're going to go lead my people out of Egypt. And so I don't blame Moses when you, when you see that Moses can't quite believe that God would want him to play a part in this. And it's why he asks God, who am I that I should be the one that you want to go and do this? And that's, that's Moses' first question to God. Who am I? It's a very human and a very humble question from Moses. At this point, Moses isn't resisting God outright. That's going to come a bit later. But here he's more confused or he's wondering why God would want to partner with him. And you have to remember that Moses, well, his story and his resume isn't sparkling. I mean, he's been living as a fugitive in the wilderness for something like 40 years. And he's had a lot of time to doubt God and to doubt himself. I mean, back in chapter 2, we saw that Moses, he tried to rescue his people on his own, and it didn't work out very well. They, they, they didn't like the fact that this Hebrew who became Egyptian royalty came, and now he is wanting to free them. It didn't go well. He tried to take the rescue into his own hands, and it ended up with him murdering someone and running for his life. And so when we're talking about Moses, we're not talking about someone with a sparkling resume. We're not talking about a first-round draft pick here. And yet, God is saying, let's do this together, Moses. I would choose you for this assignment. And it's surreal, and it's, it's humbling, and you know, I get it. I really get this. Over the past year, uh, my wife and I have entered into this journey with God that has led us to take on this new assignment as the leader of this church. And I've got to tell you, over and over in prayer and in conversation with God, I've asked that question, who am I that you would choose me to do this? Like, you know me, God. You know my weaknesses. You know the shadow sides. You know my story. Why me? Who am I that you would ask me to do this and give me the privilege to do this with you? See, it's a humbling thing to be asked to join God in what he wants to do in the world. And so, I don't know about you, but I'm with Moses here. I feel this question alongside him. God, who am I that you would choose me to do this? And God, well, he doesn't, <laughs> he doesn't really respond to Moses' question. He doesn't want to talk about Moses. Instead, he wants to talk about himself and his presence with Moses. He says, Moses, I will, I will be with you. 
And when God does that, it's a promise of his presence. It's a promise that, that every step Moses takes, that every conversation he has, every moment when he's faced with an obstacle, every time he's leading his people out of slavery, he will never take it alone. This God, this holy, transcendent, beautiful, powerful God is going to be with Moses. And for God to be with someone, what it really means is that he's going to go with them to do what he's asking them to do. It means he's going to give them his power and his strength and the help they need to do what he's asking them to do. And so when God says, I will be with you, he's not asking us to rely on our own strength, our own wisdom, or our own ability. He's saying, rely on mine. So that's what he's telling Moses. That's what he's promising Moses, his presence, his power, his strength, his help. He says to Moses, I will be with you. And I love what uh, author Judd Wilhite says about this in his book, Uncaged. He says, God often leads his people into places where they feel overwhelmed. The task is too large. The enemy's too strong. The threat's too big. The odds too great. The escape's unbearably narrow. The rescue's virtually impossible. The eventual redemptive outcome's unimaginable. In all these cases where people felt overwhelmed and life felt unhinged, one promise was given, and it was given by God himself. I'll be with you. It was not a promise of comfort, convenience, or construction. It was a promise of presence. God consistently promised to walk with his people through their overwhelming scenarios. It's not a promise of comfort. It's not a promise of things working out exactly as we want. It's a promise that in our circumstances, God is going to be with us. And when God is with us, well, that changes everything. Now it's not about us. It's about him and what he can do. That's the difference maker for us and for Moses and the things that God is asking us to do. Is that we don't actually do this life alone that God is with us. That's the promise of God for Moses, how he answers Moses' first question, that the holy God of history is going to be with him. And so right from the start, we need to see something really important and hold on to it as we continue to go along here. The first is this, is that your past and your mistakes do not disqualify you from knowing God or being used by God. They don't. They didn't for Moses, and if you read throughout the story of the Bible, it's clear that God uses all kinds of people with all kinds of stories, with all kinds of pasts to do amazing things, to partner with them to do what he wants to do in the world. Names of heroes of our faith, like Moses, here. He was a murderer and a fugitive, and yet God chooses him to lead his people out of slavery in Egypt. Or what about David? David was a murderer and an adulterer, and yet he was God's king a man after God's own heart, and from his family line, Jesus would come. Or what about Sarah? She was married to the father of the Jewish people named Abraham. She laughed at God when he told her he'd, he'd give her a child in her 90s. What about Abraham? He sold out Sarah, his wife, tw not once but twice to save his own skin, and yet he was the one that received the blessing and the promise that through his family line, the whole world would be blessed? Or what about Peter famously denied Jesus three times when he said he wouldn't? Jesus restores him and Peter became a key leader in the church. Like I could go on, but the reality is, is that whatever your past looks like, no matter what brokenness you have, no matter how broken your story is or the things you've gone through with this God, whatever it is that you 
have done or had done to you, it does not get in the way of knowing him and having a part to play in the story that he's writing. He can use you, just like he used Moses. That's the first thing. The second is this, is what, what God asks us to do is always more about him than it is about us. See, right from the start, this pattern is established, and we're going to see it over and over again as we walk through these objections and these reasons that Moses has for why he can't do this. After each question and reason Moses gives in some way, shape, or form, God is reminding Moses that he will do this, that he's the one that will make it happen, that it's, it's about him and his power, not Moses's or Moses's power. See, all he wants Moses to do is to go with him. To go with him, that's what he wants. The success of this mission that God has laid on Moses' lap is not on Moses' shoulders. It's on God's. He's got this. He's going to do it. He will rescue his people. He will lead them to freedom. But he wants to do it with Moses. And that's a great mystery and a great privilege that the big, powerful, holy God wants to go with us to do things in the world. But sometimes that's overwhelming. Sometimes that's scary. Sometimes that's not comfortable. And Moses, in this moment, he's really feeling that, which prompts him to ask a second question in verse 13. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. And so if Moses' first question was, Who am I? His second is, Who are you? See, he wants to know who God is. He wants to know the name and the identity of the God he's standing before so that when he goes back to Egypt, he'll know what to tell them. And that's an important thing because you have to put yourself in the context of Exodus. For the people of God, they'd lived in Egypt for centuries. And in Egypt, their worldview was that they believed in many gods and they worshipped many gods, and they saw nature as being infused with divinity, and so Egypt was this polytheistic and pantheistic culture. And Israel had grown up in that, and generations had been soaking that in just by living in there, and even though they knew about God and they heard about God, and that was probably passed on down the generations, that influence was great as they lived in exile. And so for Moses and for God's people to know the God who is coming to rescue them was important because there were many gods. And so Moses asks, which God are you? Who are you? What is your name? And God tells him, I am who I am. So what does that mean? Because that doesn't really help us. But I did some digging, and when we look at that phrase and its connection with the, the, the title, the Lord, in the next verse, it means that God is unchanging that he always has been, he always is, and he always will be. That this God has bound himself to a specific people and he will never abandon them. That he's the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. That this God has been unchanging all the way along through history. This God, the divine name, is Yahweh, the creator and sustainer of all that exists, the one true God, the God of creation, the God of history, the one who is in control of all that is and all that happens. This is the God and his name. 
that Moses is given Yahweh, the unchanging God who rules and reigns over all things. And this name is a name that is going to shape how God's people think about him for generations. See, for centuries, Israel will not be able to think about God without thinking about this moment. From generation to generation to generation, this is the name and the moment that would come to mind when God's people thought about him. So what this name was to Israel is like what the name of Jesus is to us. Like, we can't think about Jesus without thinking about the cross and the empty tomb and what they accomplished. They go together. They can't be separated. And so for God's people, Israel, Yahweh can't be separated from this moment, from the revelation of his name and from what he would go on to do in the Exodus. That's how big this moment is. It is a, a, a shaping moment for how God's people were to think about the God who was there to rescue them. This is who God is. And he's about to orchestrate a rescue that will also shape his people's thinking for generation after generation. He is Yahweh. He is the great I am. And he's got a plan for rescue. Verse 16 God says to Moses, Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now, please let us go three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. This is the roadmap for rescue that God gives to Moses. He says, this is who I am. This is what I'm going to do. He even goes so far to say, as I promise that I will do this. God is, is being so clear with Moses that what he is saying is going to happen. But again, Moses asks another question. Well, what if they won't believe me? Or listen to me. Verse 1 of chapter 4. Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? He said, A staff. And he said, Throw it on the ground. So Moses threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, Put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it and it became a staff in his hand. That they may believe that the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe this latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground, and the water that you shall take from the Nile 
will become blood on the dry ground. And so that at this point, it's not really surprising that Moses continues to questions, question God. Like, we've been on this trajectory since the first question all the way back in chapter 3, verse 11. But what is surprising is the lack of faith that Moses has. I mean, if you look back at chapter 3, verse 18, what does God say there? God tells Moses that the leaders of my people in Egypt, they will listen to you. They will believe you. And what does Moses do? Well, what does he ask here? He's like, well, what if they don't believe me or listen to me? And so maybe Moses wasn't listening. Maybe he just missed it. But I think at the basis level, at the level of the heart, this is a re revealing of Moses' lack of trust in God at this point. He still hasn't come to a place where he feels he can trust this God before him. And it's so real, again, it's so human that, that we watch this play out between God and Moses and it strikes me just how gracious God is over and over as he's meeting Moses in his questions, as he's meeting Moses in his doubts. Already look at what God's done. In chapter 3, he's revealed himself, his purposes, and his promises. And now in chapter 4, God's going to reveal his power. We see the first mention of God's power in verse 19 and 20 of chapter 3. God promises rescue, but he says it's not going to be easy. He's like, I'm going to have to use my mighty power to make this rescue happen. Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, he's not just going to let you go. He's going to fight me on this. His heart is going to be hardened, and he is going to struggle to let my people go. So I'm going to have to use my divine power to make this happen. This is the first hint of the plagues that God is going to inflict on Egypt in just a few chapters. But here, God's not just going to hint at his power. He's going to actually reveal some of his power to Moses, and he does that by giving him three signs, by turning a shepherd's staff into a snake, by giving him and then curing a skin disease, and then changing water into blood. Each is a demonstration of the power that God has, and it's meant to stir up faith in Moses, help to build him up so that he can trust this God, and so that the people he is going to bring these messages to will also trust this God. See, God is giving Moses a taste of what he can do. And he gives these three signs to help him and help him once he arrives in Egypt. This is a God who has power to do extraordinary things. I mean, in the first two books of the Bible alone, we see a God of extraordinary power. At the very beginning, in the first book of the Bible called Genesis, God creates everything in the world by nothing more than speaking it into existence. He has that kind of power. He has power to create out of nothing. And then in Exodus, we're going to see over and over again that God has power to do incredible, extraordinary, miraculous things that he can actually bend creation to his will. He has the power to split seas. He has control over his creation. He can do wonders. And those wonders are meant to lead us to worship. That's why God does these things, to free his people, but also to reveal who he is and to inspire trust, to build faith and to lead us to worship him for who he is. And here again, we are seeing something of the God who Moses is face to face with, that this God isn't just holy and that he doesn't just care about what is going on in your life, in my life. He's not just eternal and unchanging. This God is also powerful, that he can do more than we could ever ask or imagine, that that is who he is. 
And at this point, you'd be like, what more do you need, Moses? What more do you need? How much more convincing is there for you to trust this God and give him your yes? But Moses needs more because he comes up with two final reasons for why he can't do this. The first is in verse 10. But Moses said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seen or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. And so this time, Moses says, God, I don't have what I need to do this. I'm not a good speaker. How can I go and do this and talk to Pharaoh and be in the royal courts and have a struggle to get the words out of my mouth? I don't have the tools, God. But again, God says, hey, Moses, it's not about you. It's about me. I'm in control of what you need to do this. I gave humans their mouth and I can give you the words that you need to speak. And again, that dynamic that we've been talking about and touching on all the way through this is at play. Moses is focused on what he can or can't do. And God keeps telling him that, Moses, it's not about you. It's about me going with you. It's about me doing through you what I'm asking you to do. But Moses still hasn't come to the place where he sees this yet, where he has stepped onto the ground that God wants him to, to see things from God's perspective. He still hasn't grasped the reality that it's not about him. It's about God. And at this point, you'd think Moses would have gotten this, that every one of his questions had been answered by God, his doubts had been addressed by God, God's given him a roadmap to rescue, and finally Moses just says, God, I don't want to do it. Verse 13, but he said, Oh my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is there not Aaron your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. And take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs. So after everything God has done everything that Moses has seen and heard and experienced, he just comes to a place and says, send someone else, God, I don't want to go. And I mean, how many of us have done this with God? We want God to redeem things around us. We want to see God's kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, right here in Abbotsford. We want to see people's lives change. We want his light to shine into the darkness, to see healings and brokenness restored. We want all that. We pray for that. We hope for that. We're in agreement with that until God asks us to be the one to go and to join him in seeing that happen. See, what then? And so often in those moments, we hesitate, we resist. Sometimes we're like, Moses, why don't you just go and do it, God? Or why don't you send someone else? See, we love it when God tells us he's going to do something for us. But it can all change the moment when he says that he wants to go with us to do that, when we have to get out of our comfort zone, when it's going to cost us something. And this is the, the human element at play in God's work in the world with a God that we follow who wants to partner with us to see his kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. There will always be a human element in this. And when that happens, like it happens here with Moses, when we resist him to the extent that Moses does, sometimes God gets angry. Right here, he 
He, we're told that his anger gets stirred up because of Moses' resistance. And we have to see the two sides of this, is that God's anger is real, but he's always reluctant to exercise it. And just a little bit uh, in this uh, story of Exodus, we're going to see God describe his character in Exodus 34. And one of the ways God describes himself is that he is a Lord who is merciful and gracious, who's slow to anger, and who abounds in steadfast love and faithfulness. With this God, anger comes for a moment, but his grace never ceases. And we get that beautiful picture of that kind of character of God as God says to Moses, I'll send someone with you. Even though God is angry for a moment, his grace overflows and he says, I'll send your brother Aaron with you. That is grace. That's how God engages with us when we're on the holy ground, when we're wrestling with him, when we have questions and doubts like Moses. And that's where this part of the story ends, with Moses wrestling with God and with what God is asking of him. It's, it ends with grace. It's a very human, a very real story that brings up a few important takeaways for us. The first of which is that holy ground is awesome, but it's not without its struggle. See, we talked about it last week, but our goal as a church, as followers of Jesus, is to get on holy ground because where holy ground is, a holy God is, and we want to be where God is, that we want to know him. We want to join God in what he's doing. That's what we're after. That's what we're pursuing together in 2023 as a church. And so we want to be on holy ground, but when we get there, we have to be aware that it's going to blow our minds and it's going to stretch us and challenge us and we're going to face our inadequacies and our limit, limitations, which is normal when you're in the presence of a God who is so great that we can't fully fathom it. And that's the reality of this God that we are confronted with in this story is that when we step onto holy ground, we will be in the presence of someone greater than we can imagine. And we get to experience the awesomeness of that, but it also opens us up to struggle with that. Because God breaks all our categories. He doesn't think in the same way that we do. And he does ask us to join him in things that we don't see or believe even that can become possible from our perspective. And so struggle is inevitable in a life with God. Holy ground is awesome, but it doesn't come without its struggle. And this leads us to the second and final thing I want to take with us from this story is that wrestling with God is normal. Wrestling with God is normal. See, the tension in this story throughout this encounter that Moses has with God is that this God is, who is holy and powerful wants to partner with you and with me to do things in the world. And there's a human struggle with that and what God asks us to do. It's a, there's a human element in this and throughout Exodus 3 and 4, we've seen God on display. He's been the main character of this story. He's come out front and showed us who he is and showed us what he can do and what he wants to do. But there's also a lot of the human element on display in Exodus 3 and 4 too. Specifically, the, the struggle that we can have when our, our lives are met by a holy God and he calls us to do something in the world. See, if you boil it all down, Moses' biggest issue is that he's resistant to God and what God wants to do in and through him. He has a hard time getting on board with God's plan. And when we see this, we see the human struggle to receive from God is, is normal. It's one we can all relate to. 
And we want God to move. We want God to do things in our world. We want to see his kingdom break in and the realities of heaven on earth. But it becomes difficult when it's going to cost us something, when it's going to break us out of our comfort zones. And for Moses, that was safety and discomfort that he was being asked to leave behind. And for you, it might be fear, doubt, uncertainty, a desire to keep control of your life. Whatever it is, there's always a human element in our life with God. And it's hard to align our desires and our dreams and our plans and hopes with God's sometimes. It's going to take awareness and effort and a desire to do it. And I know so often in my own life, uh, I have to push myself to want what God wants. I have to ask him to change my heart so that um, I can join him in his dreams and his plans and not try to live by my own. I see a hesitancy and a resistance in myself all the time, and maybe you do too. And so the question I have is, what do we do with that? I think the answer is we start seeing our wrestling with God as normal. See, if we read through the Bible, what you notice is that human wrestling with God is one of the ways the Bible pictures our relationship with God. One of the best examples comes from the book of Genesis, the story in chapter 32, where one of the patriarchs, one of the people that we've heard about uh, that God partnered with to bring his story uh, of redemption forward, a man named Jacob, he was alone with God one night. And it says this in, in verse 24, and a man, this is the, a God figure, wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he, the man, said, let me go, for the day it has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So that word wrestled, it means to struggle with, to engage with someone in a wrestling match. And so this father in the long line of ancestry that has led up to Moses' day, he literally wrestles all night with this mysterious, mysterious figure who turns out to be God. And then just after this, this wrestling match, and, and Jesus is like, I will not let you go until you bless me, God looks at him and changes his name to Israel. And it's interesting when you look at what God says there in that story is that Israel means you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. And so the very name of the nation of God's people, Israel, means you have struggled with God, that the, the nation that would be birthed out of Jacob's family line has, and that God has bound himself to has at its core identity one of struggle with God. And so wrestling with God is a part of the human experience. It's a part of a life with God. And what we want you to know is that you can struggle and you are welcome here with your doubts, with your questions. You don't have to have it all figured out. Your life doesn't need to be neatly organized to be here. You are welcome as you are because we want to join someone like Jacob. We want to join in this, the lineage of our people and we want to struggle and wrestle with a God who is good and a God who is gracious. Bring your doubts and fears. Ask your questions. God can handle them, and we want to create room for you to have them and ask them. And we know that, that wrestling with God, this life with God, it's not easy. It's not easy when he shows up and wants us to do something. It means leaving comfort behind and stepping into uncertainty and the unknown. It's going to cost us something. It's going to ask more of us than we think we have in us. And it's going to be hard, and that's okay. And so when you wrestle with God, we want you to know that it is a normal part of a life with him. That wrestling is normal, whether you are 
trying to figure out what you believe to be true about God, or on the other side, when you do believe in God and you're still wrestling with the questions you have, see, wrestling with God can actually be a place where you can learn about him and come to know him better. And so doubts, questions, hesitancy, resistance, these are all normal. And so if it is normal, then how do we engage with it? Well, the first is to come to grips with the fact that wrestling with God comes with following him. It's normal. It's a part of how the Bible pictures our relationship with God. And secondly, in our circumstances, in our situation, we need to adjust our focus. See, what so often happens when we have hard circumstances is our eyes tend to get on what's going on around us, what we think is possible, how we think we can make our way through this. And that's what Moses is doing in this text. And a lot of the focus in our time together today has been on his response to the situation he is, but I don't think the text ultimately wants us focused on Moses. It wants us focused on God. Over and over again, we see the text talking about God, God talking about himself, his name keeps getting mentioned, what he can do, his power, his ability, his faithfulness to his people. God repeatedly tells Moses who he is and reminds him of what he can do, and that is significant for you and for me today. That when we're in our situations, when we're in our circumstances, those stretching moments, those knee-buckling times when we just don't feel like we can go on, and when our eyes tend to get on ourselves and our minds get stuck on what we think can or can't happen, I think God wants our eyes and our gaze and our focus to shift to him. That the God who has revealed himself in these chapters and his plan, that this God who is holy, who is a rescuer, is loving and kind, who is unchanging, is powerful, has a plan and wants to partner with you and me to see his kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, that I think Exodus wants our eyes on this God. It wants our focus on him. And so the question is, in your struggle, in your circumstances, can you shift your gaze to this God? Can you bring your questions, can you bring your doubts and your fears and inadequacies to this God and focus on him and in that find a way to trust him and what he can do? See, I think that's the question. And so let me ask you as we close, where is your focus right now? In your circumstances, in your situation, in what you're going through, what has your attention? What is your focus on? And secondly, what do you need to do to shift your focus off of that and onto God? Because when you see that God and when your gaze gets on him, you see someone who can do immeasurably more than we could ever ask or think or imagine according to his power at work within us. And so how you answer that question is between you and God. Process it though. Think about it. Be honest about where your focus is and then invite God to lead you to get your eyes on him again. Because when you do, you realize that this holy God is this powerful God. He can do immeasurably more. And that when he's with you, anything is possible.